The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 77. I'm a doctor. I've lived for over 2,000 years. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Shush. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Today we're discussing the 10th Doctor, David Tennant, story, Idiot's Lantern. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? So this is uh, The Idiot's Lantern, uh, which uh, is kind of a funny name. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, it's from the, the, the first season of the 10th doctor, David Tennant. Uh, it's the seventh episode of that season and it, uh, it's got Rose as his uh, sole companion again, as opposed to when we had, uh, Mickey tagging along for a bit. And, uh, this one is written by Mark Gaddis, who yeah. we know is, uh, a longtime collaborator with, uh, who eventually be uh, Stephen Moffat will eventually be the showrunner. And uh, has written a number of episodes for Doctor Who, some better than others. Uh, but uh, uh, this one, uh, written by Mark Gaddis, and it aired in May of 2006. So this is, as we record this, about 12 years ago, which still baffles me that these things, <laughs> so much time has passed. Exactly. Uh, so uh, The Idiot's Lantern, which refers to... Television. Uh, television. I, I find it a bit ironic that they would... <laughs> You know, basically, they're calling the people watching the show idiots. <laughs> well, well, I don't but think you know, they're doing many, that. But but how many nicknames do we have for television? You know, idiot box and boob tube and boob-tube, things like yeah, that, you know? Yeah. Yes, uh, which is funny. Well, also funny that boob tube doesn't work anymore because it's not a tube. Uh, it's right. Usually now a flat panel. But yes, yeah. uh, but it's sort of it's I think it's playing fun with the uh, the pejorative idea that uh, which is with the the premise of this story, which is that, um, you know, TV will melt your brain. Yeah. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. sort of been the long time complaint. You know, if you watch too much TV, it'll it'll melt your brain. You'll turn into an idiot. Um, I don't in know. The, watch it. In the no, classic no. sense. I'm sorry. Actually, this is my little commentary. But looking at some people who watch, you know, like cable news or whatever, there might be some accuracy to that. But that's beside <laughs> the point. Yeah. The. Um, uh, the we I guess one thing to mention is this is not an established phrase, Idiot's Lantern. It apparently right. came from not Mark Gaddis, but one of the other writers of the show's dad referred to <laughs> TV as the as the Idiot's Lantern. And so they picked it up from there and used it. Um, something about Mark Gaddis that I've seen pointed out is that his scripts frequently focus on nostalgia Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's I think that's that's fair. Um, he like his most recent one, if I recall correctly, was the Ice Queen of Mars episode where you have these 19th century <laughs> British imperialists on Mars and right. um, <clears throat> and stuff. Another one he did was I forget the title of it, but it was another one set like in industrial age Britain mm-hmm. and uh, had little red monsters running around and stuff. 
He also did uh, Robot of Sherwood, if I recall mm-hmm. correctly. Yep. So he's got there is kind of a nostalgia past theme running through a lot of his stuff. And I think that's on display here because we go back to the 1950s to see the coronation of Queen Elizabeth and what British society is like at the time. And there is, even though he 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 does have some very sharp and unsympathetic things in that timeline, in, in, mm-hmm. in this episode, there is also a kind of nostalgia feel as well. In fact, as soon as the Doctor and Rose get off the TARDIS, we have Elvis nostalgia right. and things uh, that are on display. My sense, though, it, and I have, I, I was looking briefly at the ratings for this one, and I, it, in the ratings it and reviews, it looked like it was at the time fairly popular. But I know I've seen significant criticism of this episode in the fan community subsequently uh, because of the villain, The Wire, and the mm-hmm. kind of incessant hunger, feed me oh, kind of that thing. Was that was so tedious. Well, my, my, yeah. my thought when I, you know, I heard that was Little Shop of Horrors. Feed me, Seymour. Feed yeah. me. Yeah. I, it, you just can't use feed me without thinking Little Shop of Horrors. Right. <laughs> Well, um, I, I did think it was interesting, you know, ironic that they would uh, and I thought it, I thought this worked early on in the episode. I think I, I think the problems with the episode emerged as it went on. Mm-hmm. But early in the episode, I think the Elvis nostalgia is nice. You know, driving around on the motorcycle is fun. Moped. Yep. Um, yep. The moped is fun. Yeah. Um, the uh, the irony of, you know, the grandma talking about how television is going to rot your brains, which then is what happens to her and everyone else. So we right. have this, you know, cultural fear made once again, made manifest in a Doctor Who episode that is literally going to happen here. People's brains stop working after the wire does its thing with them. Mm-hmm. Did this so happen I, very much? I thought that in, was neat. I'm sorry. Did, did this happen very much in classic Who? This, did, they, they, did they do this idea of take a cultural fear and make and, and play it real? Because I know this was a feature of quite often of the X-Files. Mm-hmm. To take a another show that sort of dealt with sometimes dealt with mm-hmm. similar things where where you would take this, you know, urban legends or mm-hmm. or some of these, you know, old wives tales and they would then show them as, oh, they're true. And they do something like that frequently in classic mm-hmm. who I, I mean, I'd have to think about whether they do it exactly this way, but I know they do something like it with cultural fears <clears throat> and right from the beginning, because that's what the Daleks are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that plays directly out of our fears of nuclear war in during the Cold War and also mm-hmm. the Nazis. And um, and there are other later things. There's some John Pertwee stuff that's clearly responding to like coal miners strikes that were happening or computers taking over the world or, um, you know, fascist coups or all kinds of things like that. Um, I, what I don't know that they did is take small, trivial domestic fears mm-hmm. and, and wow. gave them concrete monstrous form, but they right. they they would take at least broad cultural fears and do that. Well, I, th- I think that was a nature of the the uh, format because, of course, classic Who they had much much longer serials than we have in New Who. Uh, we were just talking about that before. Basically, two episodes of Classic Who equals one episode of Modern Who. Well, most right. serials were a minimum of four 
Yeah. Absolutely. There are some two, you know, some two parters, but there's four to six, even up yeah. eight and ten. So they had Which, much longer episodes to deal with. Right. So each story was effectively an equivalent of a two or three parter for us. Correct. So they would deal with much broader for us material. Today. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. So, but the interesting thing is, is so they, they're what they're dealing with here is. Uh, they're at really the moment that the doctor and Rose drop into is sort of, especially I think in British culture, the advent of television as a mm -hmm. cultural phenomenon. Because what it is is it's the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, which is the first televised coronation Correct. and the first opportunity for basically the entire British Commonwealth to mm -hmm. watch this live together. And I think for many people of of a, of a certain age, uh, this would have been a common memory, a common connection, mm -hmm. uh, especially right. given that we haven't had a coronation in Britain since. Yeah, it's literally yeah. the only televised yeah. coronation. Right. So far. Exactly. In Britain. Yes. And so so the, I, I think that that was kind of a brilliant idea was just to take this story to that moment and, mm -hmm. and build it around that. Um, I, I noticed in the design of the of this episode the colors were bright. The, mm -hmm. the the skies were blue. You know, and the doctor himself talks about that this moment in time is, you know, post World War Two. Rationing has ended. People are are excited right. and joyful. And, and this was a, 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 a golden age in Churchillian England uh, of, of the time. Well, they've, um, and they've, they've shaken off the effects of the war. The war, you know, mm -hmm. that the war was literally, well, at this point, it would have been eight years in, in the, the past. past. Most of Britain was rebuilt. People were prosperous. You know, it was it was doing very, very well. And mm -hmm. now we had a young, uh, vibrant queen who symbolized uh, a new age for Britain. And and so the, the, you have a very hopeful joyful, prosperous sort of time. And then we enter into it with this uh, creature. And we'll get, to, we can talk about the creature in yeah. a second, but um, we should, we should mention this wasn't even though, and they mentioned how very few people in real history had televisions at this time. So they'd gather in people's houses to watch the mm -hmm. coronation. Um, so it was still, TV was still uncommon, but it wasn't brand new in England. They had it at least as far back as the 1930s. Mm -hmm. In fact, the wire, the, the character, the woman who plays the wire, or the female image is patterned off of an actual um, female television presenter from British television right. from the 1930s who and, had a, ch a children's show and she would begin each children's show by saying, are you seated comfortably? Then I'll begin. And, well, they, and, it, and they quote that and just tweak it. Then we'll begin. Well, in there's wires dialogue. And there's, there's actually a connection to um, that original, the original broadcast of the BBC, uh, the doctor there, the, that tower is at Alexandra palace, which was, and to this day still is a broadcast site for the BBC. It's, it's still their one of their transmission towers, but it was their original studios and their original studios still exist. And I think that's what they filmed in where they show them in the studio itself or the control room of the studio was the original studios of the BBC when they first put up TV television. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Cause uh, I had to look up Alexandra palace because it's another one of those, uh, uh, British references uh, that you have to you have to be uh, British or familiar with uh, British culture to to understand and uh, yeah it's 
it's a it's not an actual palace as we think of palaces, mm-hmm. but it's more it's a venue. It's a location for it's more. It's actually more like a it's a studio sport. Well, it's it, it was as I looked it up, it was kind of like a, originally designed like a sports and variety show type arena more okay. than, you know, and they did. They added more onto it. And that's where the BBC right. ended up setting up shop for the television's broadcast at first before they moved to downtown London, where they are now. Right. It preexisted TV and was was an entertainment and sports complex before that. Yep. Um, so, OK, so um, the other element that I'd like to remember in the beginning is the uh, sort of the, the, the it's the store, the TV store where the where the, the this the wire character ends uh, shows up is Magpie Electronics. And uh, as we've noticed <laughs> very often, uh, Ma- the, the name Magpie Electronics will uh, show up in a lot of places in the future uh, TV shows. And apparently this company becomes a very big company that creates electronics in spaceships for hundreds of years from now and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so uh, Mr. Magpie does, is not ruined, uh, apparently, by, by this uh Although he, he does, dies, he does. He, he dies. does get disintegrated. I guess he has some heirs or something, or yes. whoever buys the business keeps the name. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so, uh, so, but the, I just I was point out the the little Easter egg of the name Magpie Electronics. Keep your eyes out for for that uh, going forward. Um, so, uh, so the the story is, you know, this Mister Magpie is. Uh, Struggling, struggling. Keep his, yeah, keep his business open. Uh, and w- this night, during a stormy night, uh, a bolt of red lightning hits the TV aerial and downloads this creature that calls itself the Wire uh, into into a TV set. And um, to say it's later on, we learn that it's um, it's a creature, an alien creature, trying to regain corporeal form. Mm-hmm. After it was executed by its own kind, and uh, it's doing this by absorbing the mental energy of people through television sets, which also uh, deprives them of their faces. Yes, which for is some a, for yep. for reasons. For <laughs> I was going to say for for reasons of dramatic effect. Uh, it blank. They're they're literally blank faces. Um, it's, I suppose it's a lot easier than having the actors try to stand there and look. You know, yes. unblinking. Yeah. Dumb, I, I, you know. I, I like the concept, uh, you know, the facelessness concept, I think, is in effective body horror. However, the CGI that they use to do it really isn't quite there. But, you know, I can forgive the special effects in Old Who, so I can certainly forgive the special effects in 2006. Yeah. I, I have to admit, um, I thought it was just bad makeup. <laughs> well, afterward, yeah, the prosthetic, yeah. Well, there is one that's prosthetic, but then when they when they like do Rose's face, it seemed pretty clear to me that that was CGI. Mm. Right? Yeah, it was. It was kind of odd. Um, I also we, like. I also yeah. thought it was effective later on in the episode when they the doctor uses the sonic screwdriver on the TVs in the the, the sale models in uh, Magpies. Uh, shop and all and all of the stolen faces are revealed mm-hmm. trying to talk silently on the screens of those TVs. I thought that yeah. was nice and creepy, too. Right. Right. By um, the way, this this is not the only you know, so when when the wire absorbs somebody's face like lightning bolts come out of the TV and suck your face into it. 
And that's definitely CGI. And I, it, I've seen similar things on other shows. There's an episode of Fringe called The No-Brainer, where an a, a, a energy hand comes out of computer screens and grabs people's faces and literally melts their brains. <laughs> Um, so this is, this is, this is, this is not, uh, and it like oozes out your ears. And so, um, this is not the only time this trope has been played with recently in modern television. Well, in fact, if you go back to the, uh, Star Trek, the original series, remember, um, the episode was, was it Charlie, uh, was, oh, it yeah, was Charlie a, X, Charlie X who had, uh, you know, superhuman powers, godlike powers. And when people made him mad, he took their faces away, made them blank faced. Yeah at, le- yeah, at least in one case, they were laughing at him and around a, a corridor corner. We don't see the people. We just hear them laughing. Yes. And Charlie gets mad and yells at them to stop laughing. And then we see this woman creeping around the edge of the corner <laughs> blindly with no face. And they just put a stocking over her head to achieve that effect. <laughs> that, that was, uh, as a child, that was quite traumatic. Uh, and, and then I, wa- I just watched uh, an episode of uh, Star Trek Voyager, the seventh season where uh, the son of Q shows up and mm. uh, takes away Neelix's, um, not his whole face, but uh, Just his, his mouth, his mouth uh, because of his incessant and talking. That's definitely an improvement, you know, uh- <laughs> mm-hmm. granted. <laughs> so, so it's, it, but there seems to be this uh, concept, the, 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 uh, like you say, this sort of uh, built in like horror idea in us of, uh, at the idea of having your face removed and, and your, your eyes and your nose and your mouth closed up. Um, yeah. And, 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 and that's actual. And not only would that be very bad for you, you couldn't breathe, eat or see. Yeah. Um, and you know, they're kind of worried about how are these people going to eat? I, I you, there's a more immediate problem. How are they going to breathe? <laughs> right. Exactly. How are these people breathing? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but but there's also a special reason why that's horrific to us because humans communicate huge amounts of information by our facial expressions, mm-hmm. right? And therefore, our brains are uniquely tuned to identify and process faces. And right. just from within, they've shown that within hours after birth. Babies are already locking on to and analyzing faces in a way they don't analyze other objects. Mm-hmm. And so there's an innate horror for us as a species to imagine a person that's just not transmitting any of that information to us. And they're just a blank in mm-hmm. this thing we rely on for information constantly subconsciously processing. Yeah, uh, just as a behind the scenes, that's one of the reasons why, uh, although this is an audio podcast, we always record using Skype so that we can see each other's facial expressions. And that's why why podcasts are so terrifying. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, uh, and then, so, so then, and the doctor and Rose show up on the scene. um, And once again, they're, they're trying to go a place and end up someplace that they didn't expect. The TARDIS takes them where they need to be rather than where they want to be. (laughs) And, uh, they're trying to get to 1953, but they want. They're trying to get to the Ed Sullivan Theater in New York City to see. Actually, Alex they're, they're they're trying to get a few years later in the 50s. And, oh, okay. In, and in America, but they hit 53 Britain because that's where they need to be. Oh, okay, right. Okay, and uh, uh, the, the, the you know Rose is all decked out in uh, you know pink and you know a, a, is poodle that a skirt kind of. It's not yeah. a. It's kind of like a poodle skirt. I don't think it has a poodle on it though. 
I heard it referred to their getup, like the, the doctors, you know, get his big poofy hair to go in here. Um, mm-hmm. I heard it referred to as mod, like full mod. Oh, um, yeah. It, what, what does that refer to? Um, mod is a British uh, subculture and fashion style that was popular, I know, in the early 60s. Um, I think it lasted into the 70s. Um, and I guess by... This episode would imply it was in the 50s. It's short for modern, okay. and it was a kind of youth modern style. Okay. And then uh, they, there is a reference, Rose references, that uh, she knows all the lingo uh, because her mom watched Cliff Richards movies every bank holiday Monday. And uh, Cliff <laughs> Richards, of course, a uh, very famous uh, British uh, singer and actor. Uh, I, I looked it up. He, ha- he was had the third... Uh, biggest sales of uh, singles on the UK singles chart behind the oh, Beatles and Elvis. Of all you know, what's Cliff, funny? What's fu- Cliff Richard? I mentally processed that as Keith Richard. I was going. <laughs> he has what, movies. What, what's, what's so funny though with, with Cliff Richard is he was huge in the UK. I mean, he was yes. the Elvis of the UK. I think he had one top ten hit here in the United States, and that was like in 1980, 1981. Right. It's like towards the end of his career, yeah. towards the end of his career. Yeah. He he, well, he didn't come over in the British, like with all the other British uh, groups that came in the British invasion. For some reason, Cliff Richard just didn't catch on. By, by the way, just kind of jump back real quick. Um, Elvis Presley was first on the Ed Sullivan show September 9th, 1956. So the TARDIS right. missed it by three years. 56. OK. Yeah. yeah. You know, the Cliff Richards thing is kind of interesting when because you can't have huge celebrities in one country that don't translate into another. A, a, a famous example of that, f- of someone who actually, I guess, was American and then became big in England, but was unknown in America was Slim Whitman. Um, and then in, I guess, the 80s, when they were trying to promote him here in America, they'd have these... Um, uh, commercial saying he sold millions of records in England yeah. and nobody in America had heard of him. <laughs> and he was kind of a comic figure, this like country yodeler guy. Yes, I remember nobody Slim here had ever heard of him. Yes. Or Boxcar Willie. <laughs> or who's the guy with the pan flute? Uh, oh, I yeah. I remember him. Um, okay. So, uh, and then we are the other. Sort of. So we have Magpie as one part of this story, the uh, you know uh, ongoing part. We have the Doctor and Rose, of course, and then we have this other group of characters, uh, which is the Connolly uh, family. The Connolly family on Florizel Street, and what we have is um, uh, the grandma, the the dad uh, Eddie, the mom, um, and the son Tommy, and the son Tommy. I forget the mom's name, uh, Mrs. Connolly. Well, I'll just call her Mrs. Connolly. <clears throat> And, uh, I don't know if they give her a name. I she think it was Mrs. Connolly. They should. She she actually mm. does get uh, a name, uh, but I, I, Rita. I, Rita. Okay. Oh, okay. Ed, Eddie, Rita, and Tommy, and Grandma, and, and just Grandma. Uh, That's all she's known as. Eddie is a is like the biggest jerk out there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and this is where the episode really starts to go south for me. Um, same here. Same here. B- because uh, this and uh, now, of course, there were jerks who intimidated their families in the 1950s and there and there are today and there mm-hmm. always have been and it's fair for um for fiction whether on TV or in a novel to show us that that's fine but um but 
in the way it's handled here is just very ham fisted. Mm -hmm. Um, Mr. Connolly is just an irredeemable jerk and he's he's a bully. He bullies everybody in his family. Mm -hmm. He's implied to be a, 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 uh, he's sadistic towards everybody in his family. Mm-hmm. Um, he's unsympathetic in just about every way possible. And he's specifically um, well, he's a mis- handled. Yeah. He's a misogynist, mm-hmm. but he's specifically handled in a way that gets into uh, modern political correctness sensitivities mm-hmm. in a way that really rubs it in your face. The doctor is, you know, when the doctor come and Rose show up in their household, the doctor basically orders this guy to start doing what he, Mr. Connolly, considers women's work as a way of humiliating him. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, Rose, if you want to, to kind of understand the character, he really is Jackie Gleason's character in The Honeymooners ramped up to 11. Right. Yeah. And and not played not for funny. comedy, not played yeah. for comedy. Um, and then Rose starts, you know, uh, doing judgy gender politics with him, too, and is like humiliating him with her knowledge of the Union Jack and how it's it's really only called the Union Jack when it's flown at sea. Otherwise, it's the Union flag. It would, and then at, later on, she's like only an idiot would hang uh, hang the Union flag upside down, which is just a deliberate bit of snark because it's a sy- vertically symmetrical flag. You exactly. can't hang it upside down. <laughs> Um, and it, it, it's just snarkiness and meanness on the part of our main characters to someone who is being beaten up for expressing ideas that were common in his time and is being depicted in the most unsympathetic manner as he expresses those ideas. Really, if you were a time traveler and, um, and, and you wanted to experience all of these adventures in time, there's a certain element of I'm going to have to partition my own views Mm -hmm. as I travel. So it's like you don't want to be the ugly American traveling abroad and looking down on other people in other countries. You also don't want to be the ugly time traveler. Right. Doing the same thing. Stop judging people based on your own standards, your own history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you have to recognize I may not agree with this, but this is the way things are right now. And I can't let that stop me from interacting with these people and doing what I can to help them. If I just come across as a jerk from another time, that's not ultimately going to serve them. There's a there's a neat moment in a uh, in a Doctor Who novel by Stephen Baxter called The Wheel of Ice. And it's a second Doctor story set in the late 21st century, near the time of the second doctor's companion, Zoe. And when Zoe encounters some stuff in this novel that she views negatively and is slightly before her time, she has a negative reaction and the doctor steps in to remind her, we're not here to judge these people, Zoe. And really, Mm -hmm. that's the attitude a time traveler would have to take if you're going to be a successful time time tourist and time traveler and general helper outer in other times. You know, even in New Who, they do that when they travel forward in time. The doctor Mm -hmm. often admonishes his companion to not judge the future cultures based on their own old right. ideas uh, but yeah that's it's it's rarely is it uh, flip flipped over although depending on yeah. how 
far back in time they go sometimes he does true um but especially for recent stuff like we're expected right. to accept captain jack's 51st century sexual mores but not this 1950s guys mm-hmm. <laughs> right right exactly uh it's yeah it and in fact what what they give us is eddie has this um this bad habit of you know, when he's yelling at people and they try to defend themselves, he yells at him, I am talking now. And Which is his way of getting them to shut up. Yeah. Right. Yep. And then and he then tries the- to do it on the doctor and then the doctor shuts him down and we're supposed to cheer because the doctor's given this guy what for. I mean, it does feel satisfying, like this bully's being shut down, but they never should have made Eddie into the bully that he is. It's just it's just not right. Well, they um, they, they really put no redeemable value to him at all there's there's absolutely nothing there that makes you want to say okay this guy is a flawed human being he's yeah. got real problems that he needs to work on he's even an informant some, <laughs> yeah yeah he's just yeah. there is absolutely nothing in this character now i know we've talked about it before but i think like with mark some of mark gaddis's episodes we've noticed that he really doesn't like parents yeah <laughs> yeah here we get one likable sort of likable parent Yes. And that's the mom, because she eventually stands up for herself. But even she, before that, she's just this miserable figure. Yeah. Right. And she's, not, you know, it's it's hard to find her. I guess we're supposed to like her, but it's a but little even, hard to because she never does anything particularly likable. She just cowers. Well, and except then kicks for the when guy she, out. Yeah. She throws the idea. And, that, and that, I can't cheer that. I, can't, I mean, because there's no evidence he was actually like physically abusive. I mean, he might he was you know obviously right. emotionally abusive, and I I don't I don't cheer the breaking up of a family. I don't feel good about it. The one redeeming part of all of this is at the very end when the doctor and Rose encourage Tommy to no, chase Rose. after his dad. Where Rose encourages Tommy. It to wasn't go the after doctor. It wasn't. It wasn't yeah. 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 No. The no. Doctor you're right. Even it was, looks cool towards the idea. Yeah, yeah. We're yes, exactly. We're Rose, who has lost a father, as we know, several times. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, it, it, she encourages him. It's you know, whatever he's done, he's still your dad, and that's the only redeeming part of that. And I have to wonder whether that was added, maybe by Russell T Davies or someone else, to to the end of this episode, or maybe the BBC, you know, executive somewhere said, no, we, you know, we can't leave it where we're breaking up a family in this family show doctor who mm-hmm. uh we have to have where something positive yeah that that could be also another aspect that goes and this happens just on the level of dialogue really quickly um so it's easy to miss this they don't play it a bunch but the implication is that tommy is gay and mm-hmm. uh because uh at one mm-hmm. point when everyone's sitting around the tv to watch the coronation uh, Tommy starts talking about his grandmother in a way that's just designed to get his dad to jump on him. Um, and and because there are other people there, Mr. Connolly doesn't totally land on Tommy rhetorically mm-hmm. feet first. Instead, he said, oh, he loves his grandmother, this one and his mother. He's a real and, and, and someone, either Mr. Connolly or the na- visiting neighbor lady says he's a real mama's boy. And then the neighbor lady says, um, uh, that you uh, you'll have that to out beat that out of him. And so the implication is Tommy is, is gay or well, may become gay. And they kind of, they, 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 they ramp that up a little bit more when uh, Tommy is, is laying into his dad outside yeah. the door and says, you know, you fought da 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 da. So we can love whoever we want. Right. 
And that's that's such a clear catchphrase, at least in our culture today, of homosexuality, of you yeah, being able to love some of the hard, same sex. It's hard to imagine that Tommy meant that as so that Gentiles can love Jews, which is the thing that right. would have been at issue in Nazi Germany. Right. Or, right. or uh, cross-racial yeah. relationships. Interesting. Yeah. I, so I didn't get it from the, like being the mama's boy. I mean that, that idea, sorry, idea, cause I'm from Boston. I say idea, the idea mm-hmm. uh, of Tommy being a mama's boy and that needs to be beat out of him. I wouldn't necessarily have to, that uh, in that alone being a code word for homosexuality. I mean, there was this idea, you know, Eddie is obviously you know, being portrayed as Mr. Macho. And so, mm-hmm. you know, a, a macho dad would never let his, his boy become a mama's boy. Uh, but it is that line where he confronts Tommy, finally confronts the dad outside the house where he says, uh, you know, you fought against fascism. Remember people telling you how to live, who you can be friends with, who you could fall in love with. Now that could be t- like, that could be taken in different ways. Right. But, but it, it, there's, there's plausible deniability here, yeah. but I think we're meant to understand this. And in, I also think there's an autobiographical element here because Mark Gaddis happens to be gay. Right. And he I think he's trying to speak to the experience of gay people um, in the 1950s um, growing up, what that would have been like. And um, there's an element of of verisimilitude here also, because apparently male homosexuality is positively correlated with absent and distant fathers. And Mr. Connolly is very definitely an emotionally distant father. Yep. Right. Right. This is true. Right. I mean, this, I don't know anything about Mark Gaddis's uh, biography, you know, uh, his childhood, but you know, it, you know, it, maybe he's working something out here in this. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, again, I like a lot of what Mark Gaddis has done, mm-hmm. but uh, especially I, I, on Sherlock, yeah, yeah, I, I don't like, I, I don't like the way he treats parents as we've talked, and and this yeah. is an example of that. So, uh, so we, I think we finally assembled our our major cast. There's a few supporting characters here, the policeman and that sort of thing. But uh, so the the idea is Magpie has now been uh, forced by the wire to sell TVs at a ridiculous price of five pounds. You know, he's selling, yeah. he's, you're selling TVs for basically nothing. So everybody has one. And Rose notices the historical uh, inaccuracy. Her mom telling her that, no, uh, you know, people had to get, like you said, the TVs were rare as hen's teeth. People gathered in, in living rooms to watch it. And so, mm-hmm. um, and then we've by the got way, the, the, t- the TV aerials in this neighborhood are deliberately shaped to look like swastikas. Oh, yeah. I noticed that. Yeah. There was yeah. A, th- that idea of uh, um, the swastika in that. And, 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 and in fact, and then we also have uh, the, the police coming and taking these people away, uh, shrouded under blankets and, uh, the doctor gets uh, clocked. Uh, <laughs> Gotta watch not, that right hook. Yeah. <laughs> but and it chases them. I noticed them. Um, they they did a pretty good job in this in this you know in the sets for this in trying to only stick to sets and outdoor scenes where you couldn't see modern London. Uh, mm-hmm. But there was that one street where the uh, the police car went behind the market stall and through the gate mm-hmm. to hide. Um, with that very conveniently parked moving truck that never moved, but blocked the street for days at a time mm. <laughs> on the, on the, on the street. But, uh, 
There, there are also a few slips, like when the doctor builds his anti-wire device, he uses a kind of um, of electronic board that wasn't invented till the 1970s. Well, so that brings up something else. So, so you know, at the end, well, you know, we're kind of skipping around here. At the yeah. end, he traps the creature of the wire on a Betamax tape, which is, you know, funny, oh, Betamax. That, where did how Betamax he, come from? How did he even build a Betamax tape in the ni- in 1953? The he got it from the TARDIS. He got it from the TARDIS. That's, I think uh, we're supposed he, they to. They went into the TARDIS oh. and got, you know, got okay. some, there was one more component he needed, and it was probably the, the Betamax tape and the carrier for it. Okay. okay. Right. I, I can accept that, but there's a bunch of stuff that goes by really fast. In yeah. this that I think they needed to establish better, including how Tommy saves the day because the doctor is up on the transmitter tower and he's got the anti-wire device and he's connected back to Tommy in the control room via mm-hmm. a wire. And then something happens and it's not it goes by so fast. I missed right. it. It's but a, I knew yeah. something had happened. And then all of a sudden, Tommy is fixing things. Yeah. It, and it's it, like, how how is this happening? It, and I had I had to go check uh, online and it was, oh, a fuse blew and Tommy knew enough to fix a fuse. He found and the matching fuse. Or tube. That's, that's a tube. tube. It was a vacuum or, tube. OK. Yeah. And and that I could accept. But I think they should have given us a little bit of dialogue to make it clearer. Tommy is not inventing super science out of 20th century yeah. tubes. He's just replacing something. Right. You know, the, yeah. the, and the funny part is they could have added to that scene Where's the tube? I need to replace, you know, where's the tube? I, it blew. I need a new one. You know, something like that. You know? Yeah. Right. right. Just where he's talking to himself saying, where is it? Yeah. Oh, this tube blew. I better replace it. You know, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Another uh, plot point that kind of bugged me jumping backwards in time was Rose's decision to confront Magpie alone. It just uh, mm-hmm. now, yeah. I, I think this is intentional as opposed to a plot hole, which is uh, like a lot of the companions in New Who. They eventually get more and more. They forget like that they're the, the companion and not the doctor, right? Mm-hmm. And and so she confronts Magpie and ends up getting you know sucked. She, her face you're just sucked asking off. to have your face sucked at that point, <laughs> exactly. You know, I but I, yeah. I I think it they that actually played well because you know she kind of got. Went off on her own, got, you know, oh, I got to go take care of this. I got to go confront the guy. And as soon as he locked the door, you see the look on her face like this was not thought out well. This was not a good idea. <laughs> right. So I thought they actually played that well as, you know, yeah, she's kind of feeling her oats. She's like, oh, I could go take care of this. I could go talk to the guy. It's not a big deal. Oh, wait. Yes. Yeah. The scene that precedes that that tells her to go to Magpie's store is when she sees the red lightning crackling around the Connolly's television mm-hmm. set. She goes and sees the Magpie label on the back yep. of it. And I thought, actually, approaching a television crackling with unknown forms of energy and touching it and moving it around is already not well thought out. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. It had a it had a wood case. It's fine. <laughs> but but I, again, I think it's that. Oh, the doctor would, you know. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I, I I talked about before was the doctor's uh, before we started recording the doctor the doctor knew who his propensity to lick things to determine mm-hmm. what they are what they're made of that's just a bad idea go around just to lick strange things yeah I like how he does he, he, when he licks the casing of the wires device it's ah it's bakelite <laughs> you know I, I, kind of early plastic that yep. yeah I, I admit I would love to have a portable TV that looks like that. <laughs> 
That's such a cool looking little device. <laughs> I, I like how in, uh, Detective Inspector Bishop is marveling at things that we take for granted today, like a portable television. It's so amazing. <laughs> Color television. Who could imagine that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jump. So actually, a fun, uh, fun moment with uh, Inspector Bishop was uh, when he first uh, gets the doctor. The doctor has found their secret. Mm. Uh, office and he's interrogating the doctor and he says, tell me everything you know. And the doctor replies, I know you can't wrap your hand around your elbow and make your fingers meet. And yeah. which is and right. the guy in the verified that. Yeah. Yeah. The guy in the background, like kind of like uh, grabs Just his arm. Surreptitiously. Yeah. And he's like, Hey, that's true. <laughs> I, I like, that was a great I like moment. how when the doctor refers to detective inspector Bishop by his name and Bishop is like, how did you know that? Well, it's written inside your collar and it tightens his tie. And <laughs> yeah. the doctor that, that actually that was that was a cleverly done scene, not just because mm-hmm. of the, the comedy, but because it changed from the doctor being interrogated to all of a sudden now the, ins- the detective inspector is being interrogated. And right. the doctor even says, start from the beginning. Tell me everything, you know, yes, he uses he the same the exact line. Way. Right. I, I, yeah. I think that was very clever the way the, the focus shifted from Bishop to the doctor. Yeah. Yes. It's just, it just twisted. It was, that was very cleverly done. I think. Yes. They, they do similar things, particularly with the second doctor where he, 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 he will, he will be so unassuming and subvert authority in a way that eventually puts him in charge of the situation. And that's what we have happening here. <laughs> but he does it in this unassuming way that you don't even notice. He doesn't right, just right. say, respect my authority. He, he, he works with the situation and gets the upper hand without the people in authority almost even noticing. Yeah, you know, there's a note in the TARDIS uh, wiki uh, um, that says that this is one of the earliest instances where the Tenth Doctor displays a ruthless and overpowering personality when his patience and mercy are pushed mm-hmm. to the boundaries. Um, we see this happen with more and more frequency going forward, and especially with the Eleventh and Twelfth Doctors. Um well, but an, and, it, it, and, but, and, but really who it's directed to is Mr. Connolly. Right. He's, mm-hmm. He is more accepting or whatever of the wire of the villain, mm-hmm. but he just totally snaps and hauls off and starts yelling at Mr. Connolly in a way he wouldn't anybody else, anybody well, else in this story. I would say he's also the same way with Mr. Magpie that, you know, Mr. Magpie, who is also a bit of a victim of the wire. He is a victim. He's yeah. being tortured by the wire actively as the story progresses. And turn, he talks about it like he's burning, burning. inside. Mm-hmm. It's burning behind his eyes in his head. Right. And and uh, and the doctor doesn't have a lot of sympathy for him. There's not a lot of mercy for him, especially after Rose has been, you know, had her face sucked off. Uh, that that there there isn't a lot of sympathy for him either in this, which is I, interesting. Yeah. I think it's a flaw, though, in the way they portray Magpie, because even though they tell us he's being tortured, he doesn't act like he's being tortured most of the time. He's not clawing at his head or wincing in agony all the time. He does come off more as a collaborator than as a victim. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um we talked about the uh, the uh, the faces and minds being sucked into the TV sets and the doctor, you know, using the 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 sonic screwdriver to show them. And then uh, they're all miraculously restored as soon as the wire is gone because reasons. Yep, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, that, that's yeah, that, that's a, a bit of a 
hand wave uh, yeah. moment. Um, so, so the wire didn't just telepathically eat people's face, brains, and faces. Um, when the wire got stored on Betamax, she also telepathically vomited them all back. <laughs> right. Basically, <laughs> basically, you know, again, they could have answered that with having like one last burst of lightning and all of a sudden they're restored or you something. Know, they, could, they could have done something to show it happening, but they just all of a sudden, oh, it's fixed now. No one actually right. died except magpie. Right. So, um, I think that's all I have. There's a few notes uh, that that I've kind of um, found in various places online talking about this episode. Uh, Apparently, this was supposed to be, Mark Gaddis says this was supposed to be an episode for the ninth Doctor, Christopher Eccleston. um, And that Tommy was, uh, I think, sort of supporting what we were saying earlier. Tommy was supposed to have a crush on the Doctor. Oh, Um, and I'm glad Rose they didn't would go there, right? And Rose would would uh, would think that he was interested in her, and there'd be this conversation, um, uh, you know, uh, that would res- this you know this funny. Uh, I'll make it. Here's a '70s reference: Three's Company moment, where everyone thinks that yeah. right, something you know a different thing is going on than it really is. Um, so uh, I'm trying to think of anything else that uh, uh, anything else interesting. Anything? Any other notes that you guys have on this? The only other thing I have is um, that just as an example of how badly written and unsympathetic uh, Mr. Connolly is, there's a moment where after it's been revealed that he's the one that turned in Granny, which is itself hard to believe. But even after that's been revealed, he's justifying it to his wife and he's and 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 he's talk he's saying she was a disgust a filthy disgusting thing right which is it's like come on have, who has this low a level of human compassion that that this woman who's had her face sucked off um to you she's a filthy disgusting thing really and and then the uh, mrs connolly's reply is she was my mother and that just exchange just comes off as completely unbelievable mm-hmm. and is just in the service of making Connolly look bad. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, one of the, uh, one of the myths about this episode, one of the misunderstandings about this episode is that um, people, people like to try to say it's a, a mistake, but it's not. Um, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth ascended to the throne on the death of her father in 1952 but the official coronation ceremony took place 18 months later. So she was already the queen, but they didn't have the ceremony until 18 months later, which is why they keep referring to her as the queen before mm-hmm. the before the ceremony. Kind of the difference between uh, having a store open and having its grand opening. Correct. Yes, exactly. And then uh, so as the, if the queen were a store, no offense to our friends across the pond. Yeah, the queen, <laughs> no <soft laughs> Just relating it to our experience. We don't have monarchs here. Yes. Uh, here's a little a bit of trivia is um, the, the actress who plays grandma uh, who had a previously appeared in Fury from the Deep in 1968. Oh. Wow. And, cool. and therefore holds the record for greatest span of time between guest appearances on Doctor Who. 38 years. So uh, just a little bit of trivia. Mm, interesting. Uh, fun Neat. bits. Always, Fury. always good to mine the depths of the TARDIS wiki uh, pages about the episodes. <laughs> Fury from the Deep was, uh, it, unfortunately, much of it is lost, but it, it was one of the early episodes that 
got Doctor Who kind of on the censor's radar as being too scary for kids. Mm. There's a famous clip which does survive of these two guys like with wide eyes and open gaping mouths breathing poison into a room like a poison gas. And so if you ever see this clip of these guys with this just open eyed, open mouth horror thing happening, that's from Fury in the Deep. Oh, wow. And that was the second Doctor? Second Doctor, yeah. Okay. Great. So, um, unless you guys have anything, any other notes, uh, I'll bring it to a close and uh, just say that's, so that's it from us on on the Idiot's Lantern. What what do you listeners think of this episode? We miss anything? Do you have any uh, comments on any of the things we've, we've discussed at any of the, 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 the notes about, uh, you know, Eddie or any of the other elements of the story? What do you think? Did, did you like it? Do you not like it? Let us know. Uh, cause we want to get some feedback from y'all, uh, visit us at sqpn.com, uh, or the secrets of Dr. Who Facebook page, leave some feedback there. Or send us an email to Who at sqpn.com. You could send us written um, remarks, or if you want to record something, maybe using the voice uh, the uh, voice memo function on your phone, uh, send us that along. We'll, we'd play it during the show. You can find links to all our personal social media and websites on our show notes on sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the first Doctor story, the William Hartnell story, The Keys of Marinus. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. At Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Always a pleasure, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening. And remember, hungry, feed me. When will I see you again? Uh, soon, I expect. Or later. One of those.